You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Let me pray. Father, I, uh, it's just great to sing with your people, to sing of you, to sing of your goodness, to remind ourselves of truth when there's so much error around us. Um, and so we come to a time where we gather, we, we celebrate the truth, where we look to hear from the truth. You prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so we come to it now, and we want you to move in us. We want us to be changed. We want to look like Christ. We want to grow in our faith. We can't do that. It's not some try, pull ourselves up. It's your word in us, your spirit moving in us. Uh, And so I just pray that you would do that right now, that you would take the perfect scripture that you have given to us as a gift that we take for granted so often, that we ignore, that we don't come to, that we don't read, that we don't delight in, but that you would take it and that you would make it delightful to us, that we would taste and see that you are good, that we would hear from you right now, that your spirit, Father, would speak to your people directly through your word in a way that, that is this is tangible, that is, uh, they can just know that you are alive and speaking to them and wanting to move in them. And that you would help me to be clear in that which is so clear. That I would get out of the way, because I'm just a sinner, broken, messed up, needy. And so I just ask for your spirit to fill me so that the church of Jesus might be filled, be equipped for every good work. Uh, we pray it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. So last week, went to a uh, concert. Well, Chris Tomlin downtown, saw singing a bunch of the oldies, right? Some of you guys were there. In fact, a lot of you guys were there. It was cool. It was like kind of looking across the, you know, the valley there. We're on the side, and I see a bunch of, oh, there's a bunch of CBC people over there, and there's some behind me. Some were down in like the Christian mosh pit on the floor, right? And it got really crazy down there. I thought some stage dives were about to happen during How Great Is Our God. Um, but uh, so just some people back in the cheap seats. A lot of our people just there, all for the same event. Just all of us, kind of different perspective. And talking to some of you guys who were there, and, and many of you got there for different reasons. One, some of you are like first in line, man, Chris Tomlin's coming to town. It's going to remind me of my college days, the glory days. So you were there. And some of you got drugged with like, you know, your spouse is like, we're going to this concert, right? So you were there. Some of you, your community groups went, or you just like last minute, someone's like, hey, I got an extra ticket. You want to go? Same event, got there in different ways. And then different opinions. Right? Some of you are like, man, this thing back in this passion, when you get the passion with Louis Giglio back in the early 2000s, right? You're loving it. You're like, you felt like you were home. Some of you are like, it's too loud. Let me just tell you, it is never too loud. I'm just, okay? It is never too loud. It can be too quiet. It cannot be too loud. Right? Some of you, oh, I love this song. I love this song. I, you know, the, when the gold confetti went out, I thought that was, you know, di- same event, different opinions. Different perspectives, got there in different ways. We're coming to the portion of our gospel of Luke this morning. It is everything has been building up to this point in, the, in this book, right? I mean, back when Jesus, right, Luke chapter 2, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many, right? That's why we call this book Fall and Rising, right? This is what's going to happen. 
He is going to be opposed. And Mary, your sword is going to be pierced. Why? Because he is going to die. I mean, everything in the book has been leading up to this. And not just the book. Everything in this book has been leading up to this point. Since Genesis chapter 3, when there was a fall and sin corrupted everything, and God promised that one day that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. And from that point on, everything has been looking forward to the event we're going to say today. And not just really in biblical history, in all of human history, the, the most important in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago today. I mean, we date our calendar. B.C.? A.D. Right? I did that right, right? B.C. Yeah. A.D., B.C. would have been backwards. Okay, good. Oh, you're awake. That's the central point of all human history, all biblical history is what we're going to look at today. And what we're going to see is there's all sorts of different perspectives. There's all sorts of different opinions. There's all sorts of reasons people got there. Right? And, and what we're going to do is we're just going to look at them and see what they thought, see what they saw, see what they say. We, we told you in the, in the beginning of this series that Luke, the author, was a, kind of a doctor, but he's playing kind of part doctor, part investigative reporter. He's kind of like Quincy, for those who live. He's this investigative doctor reporter who's trying to figure out the facts. And so Luke goes back and he interviews people and he talks to people and he, and he does his research. And so he tells us so that we will have certainty about these things. So we can know this is how it happened. I talked to people. I saw people. I was there. Because I know there's some of you that may be here today and you're like, you're a little skeptical. You're like, I don't really know if the Bible is reliable. I hear you. But let me just tell you this. If the Gospel of Luke is not reliable, then I can tell you the rest of history is not either. Because that book has been more tested and more attacked than any other and it has stood the test of 2,000 years. So if this is not reliable, then the rest of your history books, they ain't reliable either. Right? So people... And what they think and what they saw and what, they, what their opinion is of the situation. And it's not always positive. Right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the story. This is our story. If you're like kind of you know, investigating Christianity, you got drug here because you're here for Thanksgiving. And you're like, if you're staying in our apartment, you're going to go to church with us until you're here today. Okay? I get you. I feel you. All right? We're not going to ask you to give any money or do anything weird. All right? They may, but we're not. But this, is the, this story is the heart of Christianity. You're like, what is Christianity about? I just don't know. This is what it's about. And you take all the other crazy stuff you see on the TV and stuff out. This is our story. And so we're just going to read it. I'm going to spend most of the time just reading the story. I, don't need, I can't improve on it. I just can't. It's already the best story ever. Right? I'll give you a little kind of cultural things here and there just so you understand what's going on. I just don't want to ruin it. It's perfect as it is. It's kind of like, you know, remember when they came out with The Hobbit, the movie, and they completely blew up the book for those who wrote the book? I mean, really, a dwarf and an elf getting in love, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, all right? It wasn't in the book. It's Hollywood. They ruined the movie. They ruined the movie for me. I don't want to ruin it for you, right? I don't want to ruin it for you. So I'm just going to read it, make some comments, kind of for, for the pieces that may not make sense a little bit for some of you who are new to the, to the Bible. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at the voices and the perspectives and the opinions of the people who were there and see what they say because we want to see ourselves in that. All right? So we're picking up in the end of 22. We're going to work through about halfway through 23. All right? Here we go. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council and said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
So they have Jesus in this trial. It's an illegal trial because it's at night. But it's because the religious guys are so legalistic, they're going to wait till the sun comes up to actually do it. So in the meantime, Jesus is getting beaten and mocked and abused by the soldiers. But then they come and say, they got a question that they don't really want the answer to. Are you the Christ? He says, you don't really want to know. You're not going to believe me anyway, but here, let me tell you. You will see the Son of Man. That's a messianic title from the book of Daniel. We looked at it last summer. You will see the Son of Man from now on seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's, a, he's saying yes. And so, okay, so you're, what you're saying is, you're, let me clarify, you're saying you are the Son of God. And he said to them, you said it. You are correct. That's the idea of the you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony we need? We, need. we have heard it for ourselves. He's hung himself, right? Again, showing that they really don't care what his answer was. And again, for those who say the Bible never claims, Jesus never claims to be God, they seem to think he does. Because they're like, there it is. He says he's God. We got him. We can kill him. So they take him to Pilate. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. Half lies. Jesus actually said, pay your taxes. We looked at that. Right? But they're, they're just trying to throw a bunch of stuff up and see what sticks. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Same idea that he said before. You said it, bub. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Underline that. He is innocent. I, I, I got nothing for this guy. And they were urgent saying, Oh, he stirs up the people, and he's teaching throughout all of Judea from Galilee, even to this place. He's causing havoc, Pilate, and Pilate's one job is to keep the peace in the most peaceless place in the world at that time. It is the worst job ever to go be in charge of, of the Hebrews, because they are known to be rebels, and his one job is to keep the peace, and so they're trying to get him all upset. He doesn't keep the peace. He claims to be a king, anything that'll stick, because we, we, Caesar's the only king, we know it. Verse 6. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Herod is kind of that puppet king. We looked at him earlier in the book. He's the one that killed John the Baptist. He's a wacko. Right? He's, he's super immoral. Uh, and he, for three years, has been hearing about Jesus, has never been able to catch up to Jesus. So now he wants to see Jesus. And so he, it says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad you could, you could translate it, he was delighted, right? Because he had heard about him and he was hoping at some, to see some sign. Herod wants to be entertained. He wants to see a trick. He wants the circus. He's been hearing about all these miracles and that's what he wants. So he's super excited. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And he says nothing, which is Isaiah 53. He was silent before his shears. So eventually... Herod treats with contempt, mocks him. They array him with splendid clothing, and he sent him back to Pilate. He can't get him to answer. They just send him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. Before the day, they had been at enmity with each other. Now they're friends. So Jesus goes back to Pilate, beaten, more bruised, more tired, mocked. Verse 13. And Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. This man guilty. That's the second time he said, he's innocent. What has he done? He's an innocent man. 
I didn't find any of the charges that, you, that you're trumping up against him. Verse 15, and neither did Herod. That's the third declaration of, innocent, of innocence. I didn't find him guilty. Even Herod didn't find him guilty. He's innocent. He sent him back. Look, he did nothing deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. Which is interesting because if he hasn't done anything, then why are you going to punish him? Because he's trying to send a message. Don't cause trouble. Don't be a... Just punish him and then send him on his way. Verse 17. Which is not there. Verse 18. Excuse me. But they all cried out together, Away with this man. Release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Here's a guilty man, someone who has murdered people, someone who has started a rebellion. He is probably going to die that day. It's probably his day to die. And they say, we do not want this man released to us Barabbas. What they are saying is we want the murderer, we don't want the Messiah. We want the one who is a known sinner we don't want the one who forgives sins. And Pilate, he, he, in fact, if you look at the backstory from the other Gospels, his wife has a dream. She says, don't mess with that guy. Don't mess with him. I had a dream concerning him. Pilate wants nothing to do with it, but he's losing control of the crowd, and he's a, he's a wimp. And a third time he says, what, what evil has he done? Again, a declaration, the fourth declaration in the text of his innocence. I have found nothing deserving death. I'll punish him and I will release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that, they should, that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who their will. He washes his hands of it. His blood, one gospel says, is on you. And they say, it's on us and it's on our kids. Right? So he hands him over to be crucified. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is North Africa. This guy is most likely a Jewish man. There was a, there was a group of, uh, of Hebrews that lived in North Africa, uh, certain colonies. And he's clearly there for the Passover, right? Every man was supposed to go up several times a year to worship. So he is probably there to celebrate Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's traveled a long way. And he just happens to be walking by. Wrong place, wrong time, y'all. I mean, he sleeps in 10 minutes. He misses the deal. But here he is, they grab him and they lay Jesus' cross on him. Why? Because Jesus could not carry his own at this point. He is so wrecked physically. And, and Luke, which is so interesting to me, is the doctor who doesn't talk about anything physical. It's so interesting. But he doesn't go into the details of crucifixion. He doesn't go into the beatings, the whippings. He just kind of mentions them. Jesus at this point has beaten, been beaten several times. He's had a crown of thorns put in his head, which is not just a little cute little thing. It's these huge inch long thorns. He's, his back has been shredded at this point. I mean, he, he, is, he is so weak that this man cannot even carry his own cross, which is about 100 pounds, which is typical of what they would do. So he cannot do it. So they grab this guy, and he's just wrong place, wrong time, and he grabs his cross, and he carries it for him. There followed him a great multitude of the people, women, who were mourning and lamenting for him. So there's another group of women. Very interesting, by the way, in none of the Gospels, there is not one woman who is ever hostile towards Jesus. There's a lot of guys. 
but the women are always faithful. But there's these group of women, we don't know who they are, maybe it's Mary, maybe it's all the Marys, maybe it's Mama, whoever, or just some ladies, and they're, they're mourning and lamenting publicly, and Jesus does something that doesn't seem very Jesus-like. He's not like, oh, it's okay, ladies, I'll be fine. He turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. You're crying for the wrong people. You should be crying for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? He's saying, if I'm innocent and Rome is doing this to me, what is Rome going to do to you when you are guilty? And in 70 AD, and, and, and David talked about this a couple weeks ago, Jesus prophesied, Rome is going to literally destroy the city of Rome. And he says in that day, it's barrenness, which we have studied in the Bible several times, is always seen as a curse and, and negative in the scripture. It's because, because children were this, this, the future for you and your finances and all these things. He said it is better to be cursed with barrenness at this point than to have kids. That's how bad the judgment is going to be. So don't cry for me, Argentina. All right? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourself for the judgment that is coming on the nation because I was here and you rejected me. And you should have known about it. Verse 32. Two others were criminals were led to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull or Golgotha, uh, it, the Latin word is Calvaria, which thus we get Calvary from, right? right here's a picture of what most think is, is uh, Golgotha. You can see kind of the eyes. It's very Goonies-ish, right? The eyes and the, and, the, and the little cliff there. And if you, you can Google this and you can look at it. Up top would have been where they were crucified. Right? There would have been, it's a very, there's a public road that, come, that comes right through here. Um, still there today. You can go see it if you go to Israel. This is probably the place where Jesus was put on the cross. And so they came to the place that is called Golgotha, the skull. And they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, the idea of crucifixion, um, again, for Luke doesn't explain it because they don't need to be explained. They get it. He knows, he knows how hard it is. It is possibly one of the worst ways ever created how to die. The Romans didn't actually invent it. The Persians did. But the Romans perfected it. And so they would use crucifixion as a deterrent. And they crucified thousands and thousands. They would do it along the roads so that people would see this is what happens when you mess with Rome. And it wasn't some nice little, you know, quick death. It was a, could be days up to a week where you would be dying. They would nail you to a cross so that every time you wanted to take a breath, you would actually have to lift yourself up on these nails and the nails that would be through your feet. So the pain and agony of just trying to get one breath and then you eventually would fall back. Days later, right? The sun beating down on you at day, the cold at night, your body going into shock. It was excruciating. And that's what they did to these criminals and to Jesus. One on his right, one on his left. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments, which is a prophecy fulfilled from Psalm 22, where they said, that they would cast lots for him. They did that because he has this tunic, this, this kind of undergarment that would be one piece that would be very valuable. It was very difficult to make. And so the Romans didn't want to pair that. And the people stood by watching. 
But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Again, one of the prophecies from Psalm 69 that they would do that. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. The inscription would have been typically your crime. So if you were a robber, a thief, they would have put thief, robber. His crime is he's the king of the Jews. It's a mocking. Here's your strong king, Hebrews. Here, here's your king. Again, fulfilling prophecy that he would be mocked, that he would be scorned, that he would be... Who, are hang, who was hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are, we, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. That's the fifth time in this text we've seen that Jesus is innocent. If you read the other gospel accounts, if initially both of these two thieves are yelling at Jesus and railing him. At some point, the second thief, opened, his eyes are open and he sees, what am I doing? And so he, he relents and repents of that. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, that's about three. And there was darkness, excuse me, noon. And there was darkness in the whole land until the ninth hour, which is three. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And, and that's significant. Remember, the temple had this area called the holy place, where you had a couple things. You had a, a candle, a stick, and you had a table of showbread, and you had a little, uh, a, a little table over here and a little altar. And then behind that, there was this curtain. And then behind that curtain would have been the Ark of the Covenant, where the, the high priest, once a year, one time a year, would go in and put blood on the mercy seat of the ark on the day of atonement. And that would atone for the sins of Israel for the year ahead. Right? At this point, there's no ark of the covenant in, um, in Jerusalem. So I don't know what they had back there. Um, but there is still this, this presence, so to speak, that's behind the temple. That you cannot go into the presence of God. If he's too holy. He's too distinct, as we just said. You cannot go in without dying. Except that one time a year. But now that temple veil is torn so that it's wide open. So anybody has access. The idea is now all have access to God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. All that Old Testament, the putting of the blood on the mercy seat, the killing of the lamb, the, the laying of hands on this goat and the, the sending this goat away, all that pictured what was taking place on this cross. And now that he was going to die, open access to God for not just the Jew, for the Gentile, for everybody, right? And so that's what happens. And then the curtain to was torn, and Jesus calls out with a loud voice. You can study, there's, there's seven statements from the cross, and you can kind of put them in the order. This is probably the last one. The one that's probably before this is, it is finished, found in the Gospel of John. To tell us die, paid in full. And so he cries out then with a loud voice, into your hands. He, he actually, it's a quotation from Psalm 31. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. And verse 47, maybe my favorite part of the whole narrative. And when the centurion, this is kind of the chief NCO. He's kind of the sergeant major. He's probably been in charge of this crucifixion. It's his job to oversee it. And he, and he saw what took place. He praised God. It's the word for glorify. Dox, we get our word doxology from it. 
He, he actually has a little worship service at the base of the cross saying, certainly this man was what? Innocent. That's the sixth time in our text we've seen the declaration that Jesus is innocent. And then in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, it actually says he was truly the Son of God. Which is an amazing statement, by the way, considering who he is. And then the other people, the crowds assembled, they saw what had taken place. They returned home beating their breasts. And thus the Lord is crucified. A lot going on. A lot of people, a lot of perspectives. A lot of people got there different ways. I'm just going to walk through them. Because I want you to see you're one of them. I don't know which one you are, but you're at least one of them. Maybe more. And there's a unique flavor and voice. Some of them are in the balcony. Some are in the, in the, in the Christian mosh pit. Some are in the cheap seats. They have different opinions. They have different perspectives. But I want to highlight them to you because you're one of them and so am I. And there's a little ironic flavor to some of them as well. So let's talk about Pilate real quick. The most powerful man in the city. What say you, Pilate? What did you see? He's standing before a man he thinks is the least important guy. He, he seems so powerless. This is the most powerful guy standing in judgment. That's the least powerful, a Galilean peasant carpenter. It seems like powerful and nothing. But the reality is this guy down here is in control and this guy's not. This guy is just a puppet of the people. He can't, he can't control the people. He can't control the priest. He can't control anything. In fact, he is actually just fulfilling prophecy. This is the one who's in charge, not this one. And the irony of the whole situation is in caving and trying to be a people pleaser and trying to make everyone happy, he, he, goes ex he fulfills exactly what Jesus said. Remember Jesus several times in this gospel, he said, if you want to save your life, then you're actually going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you actually save it, you actually keep it, you actually find it. Pilate thinks he's saving his life by kind of just killing, every, like killing this one guy. But in actuality, he's losing it. He's losing his soul. It's the irony of the situation. Herod. What say you, Herod? Herod the pained. Dance for me, Jesus. Entertain me, Jesus. Let me, make me laugh. Make me happy, Jesus. Do I want to bend the knee? I don't want to bend the knee. I want to be happy. I want to be, I want to be cheerful. That's Herod's perspective. And he mocks the true king. That's, that's his perspective on the situation. How about the priests? These are the experts, okay? The priest's job was to be the go-between between God and man. Their job was to, to bring God and man together by offering these sacrifices, by putting this blood. And, and they're the ones who knew all the prophecies. They knew what Messiah was supposed to do, what he was supposed to look like. And yet they're, they're blinded by their power and they're the very one who their Old Testament was talking about. And the irony is this, as I was thinking about this, their job is to make peace between God and man. Right? To, and, and, and in rejecting Jesus, they're actually doing their job, even though that's not what their goal was. Because they put him on the cross so they're actually putting the one on the cross that would bring reconciliation between God and man, even though they just think they're getting him out of the way so they can keep controlling the people. They just love their religious system. That's the priests. But Barabbas. Here's one who is guilty. He's condemned. He's going to die that day. Right? And there's no doubt about it. Everyone knows he's guilty. 
and he gets to go free. And in his place, an innocent man dies. Takes his cross. How good of a day was that for Barabbas? You wake up thinking it's your last meal. They come in to the jail cell. He thinks maybe it's time. They're going to take him and they're going to nail him to this cross. And all he knows is excruciation is coming. And they say, you're free to go, Barabbas. You're free to go. Free to go. See that middle cross on top of that hill? That was your cross for Barabbas. Guilty goes free. How about Simon the Cyrene? He's the guy that just got there. He don't even know how he's there. How did he get thrown into this deal? Right? He, has, he probably doesn't even know anything about what's going on. He's just there to celebrate Passover. And in a moment, he's drugged and a hundred pound crossbar is thrown upon his shoulders and he has got to follow this man who keeps stumbling and falling. And he doesn't even know what's going on. He truly understands, like anybody, what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus, doesn't he? In some ways. He gets to, he drops the crossbar and someone else is put on it. So he escapes judgment. You say, well, he was innocent anyway. Not really, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe he's not Barabbas, but he's still a sinner. And he carries the cross for the one who would be carrying it for him. And, and it seems to have made a profound effect on his family, by the way. So if you kind of put the pieces together, you find out this guy's name is Siren the Cyrene. And he's got two boys. One of his boys' names is Rufus, which is a, don't, don't call your boy Rufus. Call your dog Rufus, but not your boy Rufus, all right? If any Rufus is in the house, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend. But anyway, we, so we are find out from the other Gospels that his son's names were, were Rufus, and then there's another one. But you say, well, why is that important? Well, it seems that Mark, when he's mentioning that, is highlighting Simon the Cyrene as the father of Rufus and his other boy, because the early church would have known who these boys were. You don't just drop a name. It'd be like me saying, hey, and Billy Graham, and you're like, oh, I know Billy Graham. In the early church, Rufus became a famous guy, so famous that he's found in the book of Romans, too, in chapter 16. Most scholars think it's the same guy. So it seems like Simon the Cyrene's family actually was greatly impacted so much by this event that, that his sons become kind of leaders in the early church. That his, that his family, he shows up in Jerusalem, carries the cross of the Savior, and ultimately becomes a follower of the Savior. And his sons do too. Pretty neat uh, significance there. How about the women of Jerusalem? We don't, we don't know who they were. We don't know what their story is. But we know this. Jesus, to them, is issuing another call to repentance, which is what he's been doing the entire book. He says, choose between me or judgment. The judgment is coming. You repent or you are judged. And that's, that's, that's the call of the gospel. That's the call for us as a church. The reality is this, y'all. Just... just being blatantly honest. People always want to throw smoke screens. Well, I, you know, I don't know about this Jesus thing. And I don't know if he's real. No, no, no. What about the dinosaurs? And what about blah, 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 blah. And we have all these questions. But rarely is the issue with people questions of intellectual nature. Sometimes it is. Okay, I get it. There's the engineer guy. He's brilliant. Blah, blah, blah. Most of the time, the reason people don't want to come to Jesus, the people that they don't want to repent is because people love them some sin. Bottom line, 
We love our sin more than we love God. And Jesus, once again, is issuing this call to repentance to the nation. Repent. He's doing it throughout the entire book. That's what they hear. Bystanders, innocent bystanders, verse 35. There's just a bunch of people there staying by watching. Probably thinking, man, I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad I didn't have anything to do with that. I'm glad this is not my fault. Right? As they stand and see the nakedness and the shame and the suffering of the Savior. Easy to say, I'm glad that had nothing to do with me. And the reality is that it has everything to do with them. And it has everything to do with you. See, you cannot stand at a distance and say, well, you know, that's just, that's just Jesus' thing. And that wasn't me. It's not my fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. He took your shame. He took your cross. It's all about you. It's all about us. That's why he was there. How about the leader's perspective? Verse 35 again. If you are the Christ, his chosen one, save yourselves. He saved others, let him save himself. Here's, here's the irony of that statement. It is the job of Messiah to not save himself. They think the Messiah should come and, you know, deliver him from Rome and be this great savior. It is not the Messiah's job to save himself. It is actually the job for him to not save himself. So he is doing the very thing that he has been appointed to do. And they can't get their arms around that. It's between God and man. How about the soldiers? If you are a king, save yourself. If you're the king, the only kind of king that the Roman soldier knew was a king that was all about himself. Right? This is a king who the people may be starving, but the king's never going to starve. The king then would send the people out to war to die. The king himself would never go out to war. He's not going to send his sons out to die. He's not going to go out himself. He's going to send others. Because the only kings they know are all about themselves. So their assumption is if you're a king, save yourself. But this king is doing exactly what he should. He is laying down his life for his people. He's actually serving his people. Save us. It's, it's like they keep saying the same thing. Save us, save us, save us. If you're the Christ. And Jesus, you can imagine him saying, that's what I'm doing. I'm saving you. I'm not giving you the kind of savior you, you want. I'm not, I'm not the kind of savior that, that oh, you just want to raise. Yep, I'll give you a raise. You want a new car? You want a new car? You want to get married? You want to get... That's, that's not the kind of savior I am. That's not the one that was promised. But I am meeting your greatest need. I am getting the sin burden off you. That's what I am doing. I am saving you. And the second criminal gets it. He says, this is what I deserve. This is what we deserve. That is not what he deserves. He is clear on his guilt, and he is clear on what he's offering. And I'm telling you, his statement to me, it is, is this not the boldest, one of the most bold statements? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? I've lived my entire life, and I haven't acknowledged you at all. But now that I'm about to die, and you're about to die, I'm pretty confident that you have a kingdom. So will you remember me in it? I mean, there's no like, I promise I'm a good investment in the kingdom. I'll go to church every Sunday. I'm going to go on the mission field. I'm going to give lots of money. There's no future for this guy. He's got nothing to offer Jesus. Nothing. He's this breath. 
right? And Jesus, who is our next voice, says, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus to the Roman soldier says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In his darkest moment, Jesus is still stepping between God and, and, and man and, and reconciling when he is given the opportunity. In his biggest moment of pain, when he should be hating the people that put him there, he is loving them. He's still redeeming them. I mean, think about when you're in pain or you're annoyed, how you react. Someone cuts you off. Someone, you know, you missed this light down here at Duran off church. And how just one, you know, the key to that, make a right and do a quick U-turn. That's what I do every Sunday. Just, just a side note. <laughs> if you think I'm kidding, if you see me cutting across the double line, don't say anything. But in my one little moment of pain, how do I respond? Jesus in his greatest moment of pain is still loving. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Man, how, how, how do you think that felt for that guy? How awesome is that? Right? And then Jesus' second statement. Father, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. His entire life, all he did was follow God, his Father. Even though it led him to giving up his life. And, and don't, don't forget that Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. And he laid it down. Because his father asked him to. And at the very end, he's still entrusting himself to his father, even though his father had forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the sins of the world were on him. He trusts. And then there's the centurion. The guy that doesn't have an Old Testament, y'all. The guy that woke up and just thought, another day, kill another couple Hebrews. No big deal. Keeping the peace. Can't wait to go home. Got my leave in six months, whatever. I mean, he, he's not waking up thinking, he's, oh, let's celebrate Passover. He's just doing his job, waking up, killing another couple criminals. He doesn't have any revelation. He doesn't have, you know, the angels, all these things. And after Jesus dies, he comes to the conclusion with no Old Testament that the, the Jewish leaders and the scribes, they had the entire thing and they couldn't come up with this is an innocent man. This is the Son of God. How, how mindful. I would love, I, I, I trusted this guy's in heaven. It would be great to talk to this guy one day. What happened after this? Maybe we'll find out he's one of the Roman guys that Paul's writing about in, in the book of Rome. Who knows? Right? But he declares Jesus as the Son of God when everyone else is rejecting. That's, a, that's an interesting perspective. Right? One event you got people in the cheap seats. you got people in the Christian mosh pit. you got people on the sides. you got different opinions. you got different reasons why they're there. Some by accident, some on purpose. But all the same event. Seeing the same thing. This, the, innocent, the one idea is the innocent Son of God crucified and killed so that the guilty could go free. That, you want to know what the sermon's about? That's what it's about. You want to know what the Christian message is? That the innocent Son of God died in a place of sinful man so that we could go free. That's it. That's the Christian message. And there's only one more voice here that matters, ultimately. And it's yours. What say you 
about this Jesus, the one they call the Christ. Because here, here's, what, here's what's troubling to me about this passage. All these people, hundreds of people saw the same event. Different perspectives, different reasons, different things, right? Very few of them actually got it. Very few of them actually got what was going on. And it was the ones that you least expect. The Roman centurion and the criminal. I mean, those are the only ones that seem to know what's really happening. I mean, the disciples don't even know what's really happening. If they did, they would have been waiting on Sunday morning. Is he coming? I thought he was coming. They don't even get it. Only a very select few. So which are you? Because we got a lot of people here who like to, you know, come to church. You're a man. I'm an 18 AU. Because I feel like some of us in here are maybe pilot. And there's a little fear of man. I'm an 18-year-old. I'm in high school. And I don't really want to kind of, you know, if I go hard after Jesus, what are my friends going to think? And I, and I want to have some living to do. And so I'll, I'll save myself now. And, and then, you know, later on I'll do the church thing when I get married and have kids. I'll take care of it. Right? Or maybe there's some, some Herod in here that you just want Jesus to perform. Do your deal. Show up. When I need you, Jesus. When I need to be happy, Jesus. Make me happy. Make me laugh. Make me do these things, Jesus. Or maybe you're the bystander. Well, that's fine for them, but really it has nothing to do with me. I really don't care. I just kind of stand back here and watch you. Just don't make a decision. There's either a fall or there's a rising. You could say, well, I just don't make a decision. Then you have made a decision. Right? You, you will either bend the knee willingly or you'll, you'll bend the knee forcefully, but all knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? You don't get to sit on the sidelines. Maybe, maybe you're like the priest. You love your little religious deal. You love your religious system. It makes you feel good. I go to church. I go to community group. I read my Bible. I do this. I pray. I be, and that's your little thing and you feel like that's fine. But you never truly have turned from sin. You've never truly believed. You believe in your, in your system that makes you feel good, but you just don't want to, you know, keep it right. Life, I'll do the church thing. Any morning deal. Don't rock the boat of my life. My life, I'll do the church thing. But I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to live my life a life of worship. Or maybe you're the soldiers who are making fun and laughing. What a waste of time. There's people wasting their Sunday mornings. They could be out in the, on the water. We're worshiping a Jewish carpenter. Maybe you're like the criminal who, this criminal repents. This one is about to die and he still doesn't turn. He, he's dead in his sin and he, it's killing him and he still doesn't turn. And maybe some of you here, you're just dead in your sin and it's killing you and you don't even know it and you still don't want, to, you still don't want the Savior. I mean, your hours, any of those, you. And he's still mocking him. Any of those, you. Or are you this guy who realizes this is killing me and I need the burden of my sin released? Jesus, I got nothing to offer you, but I want to put my faith in you. See, that's the response. Or the centurion who has, he doesn't have the background. He's probably lived an immoral life. He's killed many people. Right? Like this. Innocent probably many of them. He's, th he's done a lot of things. And he at this moment says, I believe that this man is the son of God. I believe that he is innocent. That's the response. And even Barabbas. I don't, you know, we don't know what happened to Barabbas per se. But here's a guy. This is, this is many of our experience. You were condemned. You were guilty. No doubt about it. Everyone knew it. And you got to go free. 
because someone took your place. That's the message of Christianity. We got a bunch of Barabbases. Anybody a Barabbas? Barabbas. Went, to, went free because of someone else. So which voice is yours? Which perspective is yours? Because he is the one who will bring a fall and he will bring a rising. And the whole point of this book is to bring us to this event so that you will choose this day who you will serve. Just Jesus, whom they call Christ, or yourself. Which voice is yours? It's, it's the, it is a question that you will have to answer for all eternity. Y'all, it is. That is the eternal question. And, and so one of the things, I mean, our, our job as a pastoral staff is to encourage you to search your, your heart. Because we've got a lot of people that come to church, and I'm so glad you're here. But have you truly believed that Christ has died and rose again? Have you truly turned from your sin and put your faith? Because we've got a lot of folks that I, I just don't want you to one day think, I went to church. And you're like Judas. That you are around it, but you never embrace Christ as your own. And so search your heart. We're, we're going to be out of the Gospel of Luke in a couple weeks. Uh, you know, who knows the next time we're going to do a Gospel. Never had the opportunity to kind of dig into Jesus and his words like this. Don't waste it. Because here he is on a cross for you, for me. And next week, as we'll see, as you know, he didn't stay that way. Right? What a Thanksgiving week. That's a good thing to be thankful for next Sunday, right? The resurrection. We're going to worship through the table. Man, did I go that long? That's Ethan's fault. Ethan, it started late or something. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Here's what we're going to do. We, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Today we're going to do it by just handing it out to you guys. If you're a, a follower of Christ and you have put your faith in Christ, uh, we, we invite you to celebrate. And as it's passed, as you kind of spend some time in worship privately, just take when you're ready. And then we'll stand and sing. Um, so that's how we're going to do it today. I'm not going to come back up and introduce us uh, to it again. Just you guys kind of spend some time in confession and repentance and worship privately. And then when you're ready, take of the body, uh, the bread, which represents the body and the blood that was poured out for the new covenant. These are symbols that represent the very thing we just, we just looked at. Christ on a cross, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And it is a celebration. It's a reminder of these things. Uh, and so let's remember them and then we'll worship. Um, Ethan, you guys can come lead us and uh, let me pray for our time. Father, I just pray that you... Uh, be glorified as we remember Christ our Savior. As we take of the bread representing the, the broken body of Christ, as we drink of the, of the juice that represents his blood, we remember his sacrifice. I pray uh, for someone in this room that maybe they're, they're Herod this morning, maybe they're Pilate, maybe they're that first criminals, that they would have their eyes open to your gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners so that we may go free. That's, what, that's our story. That's what we celebrate. That's what we remember. In Christ's name I pray.